Say It With Guitars. I'm your host, Pete Cornelius. Each episode, I'll be digging deep and getting to hang with some of Australia's finest guitar pickers, songwriters, producers, collectors, and makers. I look forward to bringing you these fun conversations and I hope you enjoy Say It With Guitars. Hey, hello out there, folks. Thanks again for joining us on another episode. Uh, This week's guest is none other than Jed Pickett. Jed's a great singer, songwriter, guitar player, studio whiz, all-round legend. So I was, yeah, lucky enough to hang out at his space down at Glaziers Bay, down the Huon Valley area, south of Hobart. We get to talk about cranking up loud guitars on verandas, <laughs> and uh, his dog Juno also comes in for a guest appearance on the podcast. So yeah. And also, folks, please don't forget, I do put in little links on the show notes to a lot of the people's social medias, their websites, uh, the ways to get in touch. So, yeah, make sure you uh, check all those out and enjoy today's episode. Before we crack into today's show, I'd like to shout out to our sponsor, Mr. Billy Tarrant from Tarrant Guitars. Billy's an amazing luthier and he makes some real sweet instruments. I'm lucky enough for him to have built me a double O size acoustic guitar which I've dragged all around the country and it's sounding better than ever. So yeah, check out tarrantguitars.net.au. Tessie's one-stop custom workshop for custom-made guitars, all guitar repairs and services. Let's get into the show. All right, I'd like to welcome to today's show of Sate with Guitars, Jed Pickett. Hi, Jed. Good, thanks, Pete. How are you? Yeah, mate, I can't... <clears throat> sorry, I can't complain because I'm looking out your beautiful window to a... <laughs> Ever-changing landscape of moving water. And ever-changing carrot of procrastination dangling <laughs> right in front of us. It must be um, inspiring but also, yeah, a little bit procrastinating, like just spending hours looking out here. It is. It's, it is great that it changes all the time and um, until you're trying to record a quiet guitar song and there's waves crashing or something. But it's pretty special. Do you have any wildlife that live under the house? Yeah, we have make noise. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes there's a a seal that goes past, and the the dog loses his marbles. That (laughs) I I tell him you're supposed to be friends, you guys. There's a rakali, which is the indigenous word for water rat, which are native. They're not really like a rat. We think them more like an otter that lives under there. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That's very cool. Yeah, so I'm very lucky to be here today, uh, typically over Zoom, so it's nice to be face-to-face. Um, I know I get to have a little look through your studio before we leave. It's always nice to see the evolution of, <laughs> of gear and, uh, and the space sort of evolving. So what, what have you been up to lately in the studio, Jed? Um, mixing a few local bands, which has been really great. Um, there's a really healthy cohort of uh, musicians down down this way and it's a real pleasure to work on songs with them especially when they're as obsessed with guitar ideas as you and I and they're happy to go down some pretty big rabbit holes regarding guitars, guitar sounds. Yeah. 
can be a rabbit hole, especially when there's um, an endless stream of ideas from from bandmates and and engineer and and especially like new toys and whatnot. So yeah, I've watched I've watched uh, the odd guitar player really soak up some valuable studio time with the rest of the band looking on and <laughs> have encouraged them to maybe just get the nuts and bolts down and come back in their own time and you know not be under that sort of pressure especially with pedals and things like that and yeah yeah it can be a real time sucker especially if yeah you got your bandmates watching on trying <laughs> <laughs> to crack into the next take and you're still fooling around with the feedback on an analog delay or something yeah that happens i have often sort of offered to bounce out instrumental tracks and other things to so people could go away and you know, nut nut out things at home and then come back and put it down. I've found that can be great for people. Uh, often things aren't, it's good when things aren't all entirely thought out ahead of time and there has to be a degree of sort of seat of your pants hanging over the edge of the sort of Jimi Hendrix-esque cliff of non-safety, yeah. <laughs> which keeps us all excited. Yeah. It's fun. It's a fun thing to do. Cool. So, give us give us a little um, background, mate. What got you into the guitar? Was it guitar first? Or yeah. Did you just... uh, actually, I started on bass. I was lucky enough to grow up in a pretty remote and alternative uh, community in Tasmania, in northwest Tasmania, and there were for an area with really only a few people living there. there nearly everybody played. And there were people who who always weren't scared to put an electric guitar amp outside on their veranda and play at full volume, <laughs> <laughs> filling up the Lake Barrington Basin with uh, classic rock riffs and things, a few acoustic guitars. My um, parents were very encouraging and the the local guitar teacher was putting together a band of kids, essentially, which... I know in this day and age it's pretty normal to be at school and have a kids' band, but in those days there was no school doing that and certainly not in a place so remote. So we were all encouraged, all the local kids, to try and learn something and I played bass. I still have that bass. I was 10 years old and it's um, it still gets used occasionally. It's got no sustain and sounds like a wannabe McCartney type of vibe. Um, but, yeah, so I started on bass playing, like, Little Richard songs and things like that and then some of the older kids who I guess you look up to who could do these far-out things like bar chords or bending a <laughs> string. <laughs> yeah. I used to think, wow, can't do that on a bass. Um, and then I got into guitar. I don't like the word progressed because it's <laughs> <laughs> a word people use. It's one above the other, doesn't it? I started on banjo and then I progressed to guitar. <laughs> Uh, but I still love bass and I still get really excited when I hear a great bass sound. I'm like, oh, yeah, bass. It just can be so important. Absolutely. It's the unsung hero really, isn't it, in, in modern music? It is. And I love that we all love a different bass sound. I kind of want things thick and buttery and mildly muddy and then occasionally I get someone here with a very defined modern bass sound and... I get to have my mind opened into that possibility as well. Yeah. There's no one-size-fits-all tone, is there? Especially when you, when you approach it from a producer or engineer's point of view, you sort of take each song for, 
for what it is. That's true, yeah. And I I did something recently where there were sort of classic rock songs in a kind of Americana way, I guess, sort of a Lucinda Williams type of thing and the bass on the entire album is upright bass, which um, worked for a lot of the songs and then I was also finding myself thinking, oh, this should just be a great big P bass here or... And and you have to, in this game, let go of your own ideas, which is really healthy. And by the end of it, I kind of wouldn't have the record any other way. I really like how it came out and I would never have chosen those things. But yep. the writer was uh, very enthusiastic about it. And it means it's unique. It has a stamp on it that isn't a classic record. It's something new and, mm-hmm. and it can traverse old-timey and blues rock and Americana and this upright bass kind of can link it all together along with the singer's voice, which is, you know, the other thing that ties a record together so often. Yeah, and I guess the ability to play acoustically as well. Like if if the singer-songwriter has an acoustic guitar primarily, you can go and do a kitchen session or yeah. <laughs> coffee coffee house. And Whereas with electric bass, you're sort of devoted to plugging in and then therefore the volume floor comes up and then you're putting on this rock and roll show. So it's a bit easier, I suppose, if the songs are written for a upright in mind to just pursue with that and, yeah, it's a cool, cool take. It's a cool thing and, and it, it, like when you said acoustically, it can be um, somewhat sort of 3D, you know, whereas an electric bass is often one linear sort of sound in one spot. You know, the, the upright or anything acoustic, I guess, and that's where the thing about miking close and having a far mic and, and then trying to make that work in a mix with a drum kit is can be very challenging. Yeah. Um, but quite important to maintaining that we're in a, we're in a space here yes. vibe. <laughs> yes. Quite often gets overlooked, I reckon, um, the sound of a, an instrument in a room. Yeah, so you important. Know, a lot of people see a live sound engineer put close mics on things and think that's how it should relate to a studio environment. But, you know, quite often I think it's the opposite. I'm sure you're under the same yeah. sort of understanding. Yeah, it is. It's a funny one. I get a lot of people who've done a lot of live stuff come here and they've got sort of a certain set of ideas and it's really fun to have a big room. The, the main room is 14 metres long um, and even sometimes for reamping things that other people might have recorded at home. Yeah. Um, it can be good to have a mic facing the back wall and let the sound be bouncing back and kind of create that space. I did. I noticed uh, something recently with a banjo track that was recorded in a carpeted room, and the strings sounded like rubber. And it's it's a beautiful old banjo, and I don't mind a rubbery sounding <laughs> yep. set of strings, but it really sucked the life out of the the song in this case. So we we went and redid it in the you know hard surface wooden floor, giant room, suddenly the strings sounded new. It was just that brightness that kind of was demanding and it really, really changed the song. It was cool. Nice. So let's get back to the guitar for a moment. Uh, I know that we (laughs) – it's quite easy to get (laughs) sidetracked when it comes to gear and and studio things. But let's let's talk about the guitar. So you were playing bass for a little while and and you sort of heard other people – you know, play some distorted or some some power chords and some bendy notes. And did that just have a bit more interest to you, or was it kind of a bit more of a, 
I, I could write a song on this sort of approach or was it just a cooler instrument? I think I must have been lucky with the people who were playing electric guitar around were really exciting players <laughs> and some exciting people. Um, you know, and the, and the musical influence of what they were playing on records at high volume then, you know, even my dad playing Jimi Hendrix records at very late at night at very high volume. <laughs> and there's a, an excitement to it, you know, that kind of playing. And, and I guess at the time when you're a kid and the bass just didn't seem that exciting, not that I was like craving excitement, but yeah. it was pretty hard to ignore that sort, of, that sort of thing, especially the volume even to this day when I hear a really cool electric guitar sound at a good volume, I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> this is cool. So... And my folks were very encouraging and, and bought me a, a pretty basic electric guitar and an amp that could go out on a veranda and crank up a little bit. And then I just kind of never put it down. I'd, yeah, I just used to love it. You know, what a healthy... When I look back now, I think what a healthy thing to be obsessed by as a kid. Or yeah. maybe some would say it's not that healthy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, I, I'm, I'm sure we could all agree it's a very healthy, good way to spend a lot of hours developing your skill and, um, you know, learning a, a whole heap of new tricks and, and songs and sounds and especially at volume. I, don't, I, don't, I think, like I know that obviously small amps can sound great too but nothing can quite replace a, a big amp that's pushing out some, some decibels and the guitar becomes <laughs> lively and then it echoes through the hills. I, I recall doing the same thing at home when I was at, at young and just having a 410 Blues Deville on the veranda and I borrowed um, my music teacher's wireless setup. <laughs> so I remember just going for a walk going, oh, I might just like crank the amp up and just walk around the hills and see wow. where I can hear it and how far it I'd, translated. I assumed so that you had had a similar electric guitar experience given where you lived and not being, you know, worried about neighbours and volume and things like that. Yeah, I was pretty good in that regard um, and my folks were very uh, very encouraging in that regard, yeah, absolutely. They were happy for me to, to experiment as long as it didn't go all night, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Some sleep was needed. And a wireless, wow. Yeah, that's a bit of fun. I can recommend that. Maybe you could do it here, get a little tinny and put the amp on, <laughs> on the edge of the, the veranda here and go out in the middle of the water. And that would make a really good live concept <laughs> video content maybe. I've, I've thought for a long time about building a barge here and I was trying to work out how I'd get the amps powered out on the barge. Oh, yeah, like a floating then, stage. But maybe oh. you're right, maybe the amps could be on the veranda and the band could be out and you'd still feel like you had live sound. Yeah. That would be really cool <laughs> on, on a calm day. On a very calm day. <laughs> yeah, I'd come yeah. and see that. <laughs> Cool. So what, what is some of your first mentors as, as an early guitar player? Like either was it someone locally or do you think it was a teacher or do you think it was just like listening to records or...? Um, I definitely, all of the above. I, I was fortunate, um, some family friends who used to, used to have jam sessions on verandas up in the, up in the country um, were really encouraging. Um, our, our dear friend Peter Morgan and, and Mac... Uh, 
used to these guys used to have amps cranks out on verandas on sunny country days. You know, the nearest house is probably a kilometer away or something. Um, and then uh, there was someone that also used to kind of come and visit and play. And it was a great, it's still a great player, uh, Sam Brook, who lives in Launceston, I think now. And they were all not scared of playing Led Zeppelin riffs at high volume. And I would have been a really little kid just thinking this is wild. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, the music side of it. And I still feel like when I go up to that part of the world, records sound better there than they do anywhere else. And I don't know whether that's the magic of nostalgic yeah. mindset or or literally they built lovely hand-built wooden houses with great stereos in them and literally music may sound better there than it does anywhere else on earth. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great concept, <clears throat> especially but, with a wooden house. It's the same concept for a guitar. Like it takes a while for it to loosen up and to settle in and to resonate at its capacity. I'm, I'm sure an acoustic environment would relate the same way. Like if you've got a house that has had music played in it for 50, 60 years, I'm sure that... It would sound better than a new plaster box or, or is that just... No, I'm sure own. it would. There'd be a density and there'd be, um, you know, the character. Maybe there's a sort of mysterious hocus-pocus about yeah. it as well. Yeah. But all those vibrations going through all, the, all that beautiful timber up there and, um, and this place is a little bit... Not that it's had uh, music played here for that long but... Um, People say that it has a sound and it's, it's you know, ancient hardwoods that were put here and, and used to build the house in like 1913 or something. So it's had a long time to vibrate and there were probably, there's a, there'd be a density that you're not going to get in a plaster room for sure, I yeah. think. And there's, and there's no real cavities, you know, which would create weird resonance, I, I, I suppose, as well. Um but it lends itself to, I, you know, things do sound good loud in, in here and quiet as well. I do most of the recording with little amps because I love the sound. Um, but I have had people here with big amps and I've watched them wheel them in and I've been worried about how it would sound. But the room, maybe it's the timber. Yeah, maybe it's part yeah. of that thing. It's sort of sympathetic. All the uneven surfaces. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe even like because the floor... So b between the floor and there's, there's no ground, is there? It's basically ocean sitting on top of water, river. Yeah, there's no, there's not even insulation, yeah. and there's which can be a can create a different <laughs> problem in winter. Yeah, um, and on days when there's waves crashing under the floor, that can be interesting. But the the floor is one giant, I guess, resonant thing it's like yep. a drum skin yeah <laughs> <laughs> i've i've been miking up the room a little bit um using the floor as well sometimes i'll be wow. putting like a small diaphragm condenser about like a credit card off the floor wow and the whole floor becomes almost like a pzm mic you know like this sort of huge wow so that's that's something worth experimenting with on the on a regular yeah. stand but just very close to the floor absolutely yeah wow that's incredible. Yeah. I'm going to try that. I read that. Oh, no, I didn't read that. I heard that on an audio podcast once. A guy had a small space, which my environment is quite small at home, and he said he has success with yeah, mic in the floor, putting a microphone about a credit card distance off the floor. Wow. 
That is fascinating. Yeah. And makes total sense. Yeah. Because it would just create a whole lot of new possibility. <laughs> yeah. So give that a try, kids. I'm going to try that this <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> you never Would you see this as unfair? No words can prepare your mind for such despair. Would you have had the chance to consider all you've been dealt? So what happened, so you've got some skills on the guitar, some interests and some, some cool people around you. How, how do you take that further? Like how, what's the next step in? You have to go through the difficult teenage terrible band phase. <laughs> yeah. And um, which is cool and we all need to gather our influences at different times from different places and I wouldn't change that now because they're all part of our our musical sort of DNA, if you like. The high school I went to was probably not so encouraging. The music teacher didn't really understand rock music but at the same time didn't really hold it back, so bless him. And the we started a, a sort of cover band because that's what people, that's what you did. And we had always had original bands as well that sort of varied from punk rock to disco sort of themed things and I remember the the Red Hot Chili Peppers were big at the time and it's easy to forget that they've been around for like 40 years or something and those early records were kind of, those early Chili Pepper records were kind of funk and rock at the same time before they got into the full LA FM radio kind of thing that we know, know them as today. So they were probably a pretty big influence when we were 16. Yep. You know, Blood Sugar, Sex Magic and even Mother's Milk to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and the record that they never really speak of, which is One Hot Minute, which I think's probably one of their best records. It's like... Yeah. Big. I had a... I wouldn't say a, a debate, but I definitely had a chat <laughs> with a, a, a mate of mine a few days ago about One Hot Minute. Wow. Yeah. It's still a one hot topic. It is. <laughs> it's an endless <laughs> topic of, uh, you know, the Frusciani verse... Um, Oh, he's a guitar player on that oh. record. He's from... Jane's Addiction. Jane's Addiction, yeah. Yeah, um, it's on the tip of my tongue. I don't know, I can see him. Navarro, Steve yes, Navarro. Dave Navarro. Dave Navarro. That's right. I feel like they didn't talk about the record because once Frischani came back, it was like part of his rehab and emotional healing to avoid the record, but, which I might have just invented out of thin air. <laughs> but um, really that record is full of these... I'd love to know what what happened, by the way, with your debate with your friend about this. But I feel like it's a like Beatlesque melodies meets this funky rock band, and then it wasn't really ever the same before or since. And and to be honest, after that record, I kind of fell out of love with them. And I don't. I mean, I can appreciate the modern era, but I I feel like before that record and up to that record, they had something to prove and fight for and deliver. And then after that, they were so big that they 
they could kind of relax and maybe that's maybe that's unfair on my part but um what what was tell me about your discussion um it was it was interesting we well, it wasn't really a debate we're both on the same side but we're both sort of just hearing each other out i suppose like i i think it sounds like navarro was a little bit self-indulgent and oh yeah and just overplayed and it, that's fair but but <laughs> flea you know he likes to play as well <laughs> And so does um, Chad Smith. Is oh, it's a very like, Chad. Everyone's playing a lot. Yeah, I but think. it is what the nineties or something, maybe. Yeah, yeah, and but it's it's still funky. It's still got some cool melodies, like you said, and um, songs like Walkabout. Yeah, it's funky as. Yeah, but a great song as well. Yeah, Aeroplane was a Aeroplane. Big one. Yeah, we would have played that in one of our cover bands. Yeah, <laughs> and um, my friends. My f- yeah, my friends were on that too, wasn't it? That yeah. was a big hit. Great song. Yeah. So no, I think I think it's a good record. Yeah. Wow. I'm a bit scared to listen to it after this. I probably haven't listened to it for <laughs> 20 years and I'm going to put it on and be regressing into some weird childlike state on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we played that stuff and then we had this original band that was, I guess, inspired by that kind of thing. It was funky and it had ballads as well. And then uh, we left this great uh, island state of ours and we went we went to Queensland and then Melbourne and tried to be a band on the run, which didn't really work. But it was really good, good experience. Yeah, yeah. You can always learn stuff from things that aren't so good, you know. I guess be a band member and be a good sort of comrade to your, to your fellow bandmates or to... You know, just get from one show to the other without killing each other or without burning out or... Without crashing the van. Without, <laughs> without spending all the money from the gig on a stretch limo because it seems like a good idea at the time. <laughs> <laughs> that happened at, uh, after the Miami Shark Bar gig at the Gold Coast. Such a Gold Coast thing to do. It's such a Gold Coast thing to do. I'll never do that again. Oh, limo. That's when I didn't get a chopper <laughs> while you're at it. <laughs> Yeah, cool. And what sort of guitars have you been, sort of had a particular instrument follow you through your career as such or have you sort of just been, a, you know, a bit of a mover and collector or <laughs> let us let us know a bit about your guitar insights? I have been you. known to chop and change a few guitars. I feel like all roads always lead back to the Telecaster but I didn't really start there. I used to have a, a Strat and then I got this wacky... 70s Maton uh, electric guitar, Phil Manning Maton, which is a sort of based on a Les Paul but with probably a dozen switches and yeah. buttons on it. Yeah. And um, it, at the time, I guess, Chain was Phil Manning's band in the, in the 70s when that guitar was made and they were a big deal and, you know, Australia wanted to have its own signature guitars like everybody else and they made maybe 250 of them and they made some mono non-stereo versions and I'm still kind of seduced by the idea of stereo guitars and wacky ideas and two amps and all, all of that but actually it's it always never works. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It, it works and then you get to the gig and you've got some, you know, rotary simulator that has to have two amps or a double tracking pedal and the sound engineer will say, oh, sorry, mate, I'm out of channels. You just <laughs> can only mic one up. And I'm like, no, it was no. going to be panned in this massive room with two amps. Yeah. Of course, forgetting that there's a whole rest of the band to think about. <laughs> but that guitar was cool and 
I met Phil and he said that he gave one to Eric Clapton and he handed it back and said, there's too many buttons and switches on this thing wow. for me. Yeah, right. Poor, I haven't heard that. That's cool. Poor Phil. Poor Phil. <laughs> <laughs> it was a cool guitar. Um, and then... Like, they looked heavy as sin. Like, were they really dense? Really heavy and it yet hollow. As in, oh, it's a, it like looks a like a Les Paul. Yeah, on the back it had these kind of maple panels that look oh. like part of a kitchen design and they could come off. You took them off and there were these huge cavities, but yet it still was heavy as all get out. Wow. Must have been really dense wood and yeah. um, all those buttons and switches. Yeah, all the electronics weighed it down. Weighed it down. But it was yeah. a really great sounding guitar. It, it really was a well-made, <clears throat> I think maybe Bill May in that era was really trying to make the best guitars that he could. Yeah. Yeah, I, that, was, that was kind of the main guitar for about 10 years for me. But now I always try and have different guitars and... and ES-style guitars and SGs and whatnot, but I always come back to my Telecaster and it, for me, I don't know whether it's because it aligns with my recent guitar hero's kind of choice of guitar, you know, like the Steve Cropper or yeah. Colonel Dupree on those Aretha Franklin records. Yeah. I hear those and they're always simple parts as well. I've, like I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to mention one of those people playing a ripping solo on a Telecaster, even though I'm sure they're on YouTube somewhere doing it. But every time I hear those sounds, I'm like, oh, that is the greatest sound, like on all those Stax records. Or, you know, I just, and maybe it's his playing and nothing to do with the Telecaster, but it keeps me coming back <laughs> to the Telecaster. And also I guess it's a guitar design that you feel like you're always having a fight for, that, you know, especially if you're playing guitar solos. You know, Jeff Lang once very politely pointed out to me after, after we played a gig and I was playing an SG and he said, you should play those style of guitars more often. They really suit your playing. It looks like you find it much, it's much easier or something. And I, and I kind of walked away going, oh, what about the Telecaster? <laughs> but he was right, of course. And and sometimes I play an SG, I feel like it's the easiest guitar in the world to play and it's like a hot knife through butter and everything yeah. works and all the notes yep. land. Yeah. Whereas the Telecaster, it's a bit like a broken piece of farm machinery that you've got to make work. <laughs> Pete's shaking his head saying, not for me it isn't. 
No, it's no. I think you, I think you're on the money there. It it is like because of its square body, as like it's not as comfortable. Mm. Um, scale length, scale length. Um, quite often, well, the ones that I like have quite big necks on them. Um, yeah, and the, and the switches are a bit hard to get to, mm. and the ergonomics of that. <laughs> Three-way switch, like it should go up and down. Like the like, lack like of ergonomics. The strat, you think about the strat one goes up and down. It sort of falls under your strike of the hand. Mm. Whereas with the telecast, you kind of got to poke your hand up to go to the neck or the bridge, and um, and yep. then to hear people like Roy Buchanan doing like a <laughs> volume sweep. <laughs> wow! It's like wow, how do you, how does he do that? But there's something about limitations that inspire creativity or. Or give you boundaries that you have to kind of like work with. Yeah, I think keeps it excited. Keeps it exciting. Um, it's funny. Most of these conversations, everyone comes back to the Telecaster as being like. I thought you were going to say everyone comes back to Jeff Lang telling them at a gig <laughs> what they should be playing. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm and sure. being correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the Telecaster seems to be on the top of the pile. Everyone's enjoying it as a good, a solid workhorse that is unrefined. But it does everything it should do, and it gives people room for their own style or sound or, yeah. or creativity without sort of having it. Like it, it has a sound, yes, but that can be moulded so easily as well. I think. And another thing, which I'm glad you mentioned Roy Buchanan actually, because that when I was um, maybe a teenager, we had a family friend who, who's not a musician, but he used to play Roy Buchanan records all the time, and. I used to think it was just the most ridiculous guitar sound. <laughs> yeah. It's so way out, you yeah. know. Um, Absolutely. And he gave me, you know, before the internet, now I'm showing my age, but before the internet people had records that were rare finds that no one else knew about, you know, a record that no one's ever heard of, that no one knew these people made. And one of those records would be Roy Buchanan's Livestock, which is... It's such. It's probably the best Roy Buchanan record because a, it's live at a gig. B, it has the world's greatest Hammond organ sounds on it, ah, and right. it's probably in that Texas Austin City Limits era. Maybe I don't. Sure. I don't actually know, but this was a really rare record, and this family friend gave it to me on CD. Funnily enough, the front cover of it is a butcher shop in Sydney taken in the 80s, a photo taken in like the early right. 80s or maybe even 70s. Yeah. And on the front of the butcher shop it says Roy Buchanan Livestock, which is what <laughs> was the actual name of the shop, oh. Lives, like a meat shop, right. Right. like as in a coincidence. Right. And, um, and so the album's called Roy Buchanan Livestock but it's just a photo of this butcher shop. <laughs> and you're right, the volume swell thing and just this crazy guitar sound. And the Telecaster, like the one I have now, for example, and this is another good crackpot theory for all the guitar players out there, is do guitars that have slightly microphonic pickups always sound better? And the one I have at the moment, it, uh, I just love it. I love the sound, the bridge pickup so much. And it's definitely slightly microphonic, which is not a problem until you try and use a fuzz pedal with it and then it's yeah. just a bucket of problems. Yes. And it's of that early 70s era where it's probably got one meg pots or something and so I find for the whole gig um, I have the tone control all the way off but then back on a few millimetres, like the tone control is just on for the whole gig unless I have to go to the neck pickup and then it's all the way up and I've 
debated changing it, but then of course I don't want to change it because it might change something else about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then I try having a second Telecaster that's wired like a 52 reissue where you can have the tone all the way up and it's just that magical mid-range kind of Bruce Springsteen, Keith Richards thing. Then I feel bad on the first Telecaster because I'm not playing it <laughs> as much as, you know, feelings of inanimate objects. Yep. But that, those so many sounds, you're right, there's so many different sounds to be found in that design, in that guitar. Yeah, Leo got it right. Leo got it right. Absolutely. All those little quirks and charms are just like every, every player will interpret that as a different sort of asset to the guitar, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. It's really hard to beat. It's definitely my desert island guitar if... <laughs> If, if we end up on a desert island. <laughs> There's a, a Black Crows video, live video, where he's playing, it's like an old Esquire or a Telecaster, a really old one. And once you hear that, you go, that is the world's greatest live. If every gig I ever play I could have that guitar sound, I don't think I'd need any other guitar sounds. That's cool. Yeah, and I think it's just probably the bridge pickup with the tone situation sorted, as yep. in either rolled a fair way back or or the right homage of <laughs> yep. things inside. Yeah, yeah. Some of the guitar sounds that those guys pull out are great. Oh. And that custom three five five he has oh. at the moment, the Gibson make, looks oh, so so delicious. Yeah, it does. <laughs> That's enough to bankrupt your life right yep. there. Cool, um, but you, you do have some other cool instruments in the in the stock here. I noticed um, you've been playing a Gretsch lately. Is yeah, that a, a mid to late sixties. Yeah, I've had that guitar for about twenty years, and when I got it, it had um, Damasio Super Distortion pickups in it. So I should say it's a it's a Gretsch Streamliner, but not the modern version of the Streamliner. Someone in a in a local music shop told me that there was no such thing as a vintage streamliner and I said that's funny because mine's 50 years old and it has a badge that says streamliner <laughs> on it but it is a totally different design to the modern version streamliner it's completely hollow and would have been probably designed to play jazz with I guess and someone put heavy metal super distortion pickups in it when I got it sacrilege crazy crazy uh, and I've been slowly restoring it over the last 20 years and I feel like now I've kind of got it perfect and I had um, James Mumford down at Warrnambool very painstakingly uh, reinstate some timber where they would have... It has a plank that runs under the top which they call... They might call a tone plank or something in the original design which supports the top and supports where the pickups sit and whoever had put these humbuckers in which are much bigger than a Gretsch humbucker physically had cut out pieces of this plank to fit the humbuckers in. So it had all right. this timber taken out of it right. and therefore the top was quite weak. So he refashioned these little bits of wood and wow. kind of rebuilt this plank. And then also the he it, it used to it has this massive wide open beautiful hollow body sound with the current pickups which are TV Jones Alnico classics that are probably like 15 years old or something. But it has this huge wide sound but it used to feed back like crazy and have zero sustain like yes. a classic hollow body kind yep. of, especially as you go up the neck, you're like, hello, notes, where are you? <laughs> I need some sustain, help. Yeah. Yep. So he also had this great idea to put some 
what he called tone posts then joining the front and the back of the guitar kind of where the bridge is. So they're just little, I guess, they'd be half the size of a cigarette lighter. They're not particularly big bits of wood. Right, like a, like a dowel that goes from the top to the mm. bottom, like on an upright base with a sound post. Yeah. Fits in under the, the bridge. Yeah. Okay. I right. think he was probably worried the top would sink somehow, yeah. which it never had. But I w- I'd said to him about the feedback and lack of sustain and he was like, well, why don't we try this? And if it, if it stops sounding like the hollow body it is, then we can look at something else or take them out. But actually it was a life changer. It made the guitar completely usable and it gave it maybe like 25% more sustain and now I can play a massive outdoor gig and it doesn't feed back. That's cool. Unless I want it to feed back. Yeah, yeah. It's like the perfect... Control. Yeah, it's totally under control. So it's activated the the back as well as the the top. Must have. And then probably in phase or something because I think that's probably what happens. Actually, I haven't really ever thought about it but probably... It's probably some sort of phase relationship between the vibrations of the top and the back and then like the the sound waves that are happening out between your amp and the fallback and the front house and like yeah, all this all crazy there. resonance. Crazy so, so maybe, physics. Maybe that little sound post or tone tone post. Tone pulse. <laughs> you can buy them on eBay and they're just bits of wood but they're $80. That's right. <laughs> Laced with tone. Maybe that's right. Uh, maybe it all brought it into phase with itself yeah. and aligned some issues. And yeah. the other funny thing that I noticed about that guitar, it has a Bigsby, which may or may not be original. It says Gretsch on the Bigsby. It probably is original. Um, it's always had it since I've had it. It used to, like a lot of Bigsby's, that's my dog coming through the door. It has a Bigsby and it stays perfectly in tune which is remarkable. You can almost, dare I say, dive bomb on this <laughs> 50-year-old Gretsch and it comes back to pitch. It's crazy. Fantastic. It didn't used to do that. I feel like the Bigsby, maybe Bigsby's have to be bedded in and they have to be just used and used and used until they stabilise, perhaps. I think it's a combination of every friction point too. It like, depends on the condition and the, I suppose the height of the nut and... And the bridge, because a lot of those Gretches had different bridge setups too. They had like an, um, I've got a, like a double anniversary one. It's got those round sort of almost roller bridge type looking setups. And you see those tunematic style ones with the Bigsby and I just go, oh, it's going to be, it's going to grab. It's going to stick and grab. Yeah. And Who would release that as an idea? Yeah. <laughs> That's what goes through your head when you see that. So what's the bridge on the on the Gretsch? Yeah, it's, a, it's the dreaded uh, according to the internet, the dreaded roller bridge. Yep. But it's always been on it from since I've had it and it sounds, it's such a great sounding guitar that I'd be very scared to change something like the bridge. And I, I was quite surprised, the intonation, I was, I was scared it's gonna, it was going to be way out, but no. it's surprisingly fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It, the intonation is perfect and actually of all the guitars here, if I have to record something for someone that has to have a certain sort of perfection to it like a rhythm guitar track that's the most intonating guitar that that's here it's perfect yeah, yeah and right just, and it, you just strum a chord and it's like panoramic wide in tune it's got a zero fret which yeah. i i have no idea whether zero frets are a good idea or not but i think that means that the open chords are much more similar to the barred chords well in my mind it is 
So there's no massive discrepancy in like some notes. That it's all fairly even until you're trying to play a solo up above the 12th fret and then it's back to being a hollow body with <laughs> no sustain again. Yeah, they're definitely a, um, a beautiful instrument and they, they have taken on a bit of a, a cool factor these days, which I think perhaps in the 80s they didn't quite have that coolness because I guess all the binding was falling off and everyone wanted Floyd Roses and, <laughs> you know, they're sort of, I think they're back on back on track again. Back cool Fender has revamped them. The the binding on mine has was all rotting off and then someone told me to put clear nail polish on it. Oh, yeah. Um, and every time someone who doesn't know the guitar picks it up, they say, yo, you want to sort this out? As in your guitar's going to just explode into a million pieces because the binding's falling off. But actually it hasn't dropped a crumb of binding in the case and I since I put the nail polish on and that was maybe 10 years ago. Okay. So it used to, you'd open the case and there'd be... Little flakes. Yeah. Um, be, yeah, little flakes. Uh, I'd hate to have it have new binding on it. It would just ruin the yeah. vibe. <laughs> yeah. No, keep it as it is. It's a cool instrument. Very cool. I just want to know about love Some other guitars here and some old uh, 1940s Bakelite lap steel um, made by Rickenbacker. That's a that keeps me employed. That, that guitar. <laughs> it sounds really orchestral and can do the dark side of the moon kind of ethereal sound. Uh, I just play it in regular tuning. I'll drop D so I can use the flat bar, and then I try and pitch bend behind the bar and stuff like that to ah. try and make it sound like a pedal steel. Sure. And a few other cool cool bits and pieces. I have a baritone guitar here that's sort of on long-term loan um, from someone else. That is like a jazz master but with humbuckers, but a baritone tuned B to B. Yeah. You can always rely on that guitar, maybe all baritones, uh, to, to come up with an idea. As in you pick it up, you'll always come up with some idea on it. It's, it's so inspiring. I suggest to anyone get a baritone guitar and just have it lying around. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing with tunings. It's probably a bit more so than it because a tuning is really just a regular guitar that's sort of been altered. But a baritone is a dedicated scale length. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a whole other thing to play. Like the frets, the fret gaps are wider and you have to sort of yeah. approach it differently. So, yeah, I, I absolutely recommend a baritone. Yeah, you've got a cool baritone. Yeah. Tally thing. And the... All your regular shapes, all of just your basic chord shapes suddenly sound like you've reinvented the wheel. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I just wrote that. And it's, <laughs> it's a G and a C and an E shape or something. Yeah. And the, the, the open tuning thing too, I first got into the open tunings because I was trying to trip myself 
out of the rut that I'm in, you know, when I say rut as in as guitar players, we often all find ourselves caught in a rut. Uh, I'm just sick of all the stuff I play. I'm sick of what I'm doing. And really self-disciplined people would at that point, you know, get up at 6am and start learning bark on guitar or something, but most of us don't do that. So if you keep a guitar in an open tuning, all your regular shapes and things suddenly go out the window and you come up with these really cool things and you never get bored, you know. I have an old uh, small body Gibson acoustic in there that's always in open D all the time and mm-hmm. I could pick that up and just play two strings and go, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there really is something about patterns like you know, open, uh, standard tuning, you know, your fingers fall under place. You've you've heard the note before, your finger mm. goes to it. You know yeah. what it's going to sound like. And then yeah, you pick up a guitar that's in a different tuning, maybe one that you're not quite used to. I, I know my open Ds and open Gs pretty well, but as soon as you go to like a, a dad gad or maybe like just both E's down to D, so the middle four are in the standard pitch. That's what a Neil calls demodal tuning. Demodal, yeah, right. That makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great sound. How um, good's a C chord sound with absolutely. both? It's crazy, isn't it? And I, I just love how sometimes you just get lost in the moment and you go to an old finger pattern or, you know, you sort of go to do something that you're not thinking about so much but your finger just naturally goes into that position and and the note's not what you expect it to be. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm like 12 again, you know, <laughs> learning how to play this thing. So that's, yeah, I think open tuning's for those who... Who are finding himself in a bit of a, a mundane kind of like here I am again playing the pentatonic. Yeah. Let's yeah. Here I am again playing the same set of chords that my brain just goes to. Yeah. But now it yeah. The when I first got it, I was got into open tunings, I was like, how am I gonna remember this? You know, and I'd sort of film my left hand playing the shapes. So I could remember it. And then all all you really have to do is if you're recording or whatever is strum through the strings without any left hand on them, um, fretting hand rather, to remind you of what tuning you're in. Yeah. Because then it's quite easy to find the shapes once you just remember, oh, that wasn't standard tuning, that idea seven years ago that I'm strangely (laughs) listening to today. It's like that I learned a song um, by Killy Joe Phelps recently. Nice. Um, and I, I just I remember learning it when I was away last year with the family on our little trip, sitting at Lake Argyle, you know, between all these other caravans and just zoning out, um, trying to play this piece in. I, I just thought it was in like a drop D. Thought, yeah, no worries, cool, I'll learn it in drop D. And I did with a capo on the floor or something like that. And then, you know, sadly, Kelly Joe passed away recently. Yeah. So I've kind of been going through his material a bit and listening and watching to a bit of his content and then this song comes up that I learned. It's like, oh, cool, I'll, I'll check that out, see how he does it in the live scenario. And he plays it with an open tuning and a lot of open strings. I was like, oh, that all makes so much sense. <laughs> it's <laughs> so here easy. I've been struggling with like trying to find these little hammer-ons and, and pull-offs and things that didn't feel natural but I just thought maybe he's just like made it work because he's Kelly J. Phelps and... So that was cool, like a bit of a revelation. So a breakthrough. Oh, why didn't I hear that? Like, <laughs> it's the magic of it. Yeah. Of course, it can trick you the other way too where you think you've reinvented the wheel with an open tuning and then you listen to it a few days later and go, 
actually that's just A7 and E minor and I could play that on a normal tuned guitar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, it's like going on a holiday, isn't it? You're just sort of in a different different space and breaking a few old habits and creating some new habits, hopefully. Yeah, creating some hopefully healthy habits. Yeah. I open-tuned my electric 12-string guitar for a gig the other night to open D. Great. Thought I'd really just make life difficult for myself with a badly built electric 12-string guitar. But actually it, it stuck, it stayed in tune and... It sounded wild, just heaps of reverb, sounded like the birds, you know. Yeah. But open tuning on a 12-string may seem like you're opening a can of worms, but it was really fun. Highly recommend. Yeah, something about it. It just like a big piano has mm. a big kind of resonant life of its own sound. Yeah, it's, it's like a piano, so yeah. much going on yeah. and harmonics going crazy. And, yeah, I was really surprised, reminded myself to maybe push push myself a little bit more with those kind of things. So tell us, Jed, you've recently put out a record. Where when, you know, when was your last one? It was 2018, right? Recently enough. France. It's recent <laughs> enough in the last decade. Tell us a little bit about that. Was that a, a project you had in mind for a long time or were they songs you had or was it more of a, a co-produced project with um, Shane O'Mara? Yeah, it's, it was sort of a... It was a collection of songs that I was trying to sort of force into a theme, which is never a good idea. They should just be what they are. Um, but I couldn't finish it and then I got in touch with Shane O'Mara, who is a bona fide guitar wizard and genius guitar player and never scared of talking about guitars, tunings and uh, esoteric pedals for hours on end. Um, but I, I feel like when you need to sing, you can't really record yourself singing. I'd done it so many times and with the previous record I'd done all the vocals myself, for myself, by myself. And I would do 30 takes of a vocal and just come back and be comping things and nothing was ever good enough. And Shane is very good at making you feel good about take five being the one, maybe bar a word here and a word there. And he's right. He's like, no, you've got a great energy there. If you do any more takes, you're going to lose an energy. And he's completely correct. So that's really the, if there's any sort of chemistry and magic to be found on the record France, um, I would definitely attribute a lot of it to him not letting me mix the magic out of it and do too many takes and trying yeah. to keep some sort of excitement about the vocals, which is really the most important thing. And I, I learnt so much and that I would, uh, you know, take with me to the next the next project from working with, with him. I would highly recommend anyone working with just someone else at least once in their life. It's very easy to always be working by yourself, especially now that the technology is so good and you can record at home. Um, it's definitely money well spent because you're going to just have, you're going to be able to step outside of yourself for even five minutes and observe something from a totally different perspective. And and with guitar ideas too, like no one ever is going to think of all the ideas by themselves. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and it might be something simple like, okay, let's take that chord progression and double it with a Nashville high-strung tuning guitar or 
what sort of voicing could we come up with if we we leave your guitar as it is, but we'll we'll do it again with a capo on the fifth fret with a whole set of different shapes, and you know yourself those things can really make a song just yeah. open up. But yeah, the France record that <laughs> has a few songs with written and played with open tunings. Uh, I started that in in Ireland. I was living in Ireland for quite a few years, and then I finished it in Melbourne. It's, yeah, it's it's had a life, I guess. It's fully distributed. It's You can get it at JB Hi-Fi and things like that, which is nice, even though they're selling it for below cost, which is not <laughs> nice. But it's very much a guitar record. There's a whole lot of parts. Some some music characters often will get in touch and say, how did you get that sound or what's going on there? And some of them are really, you know, things you wouldn't expect, like I was going down a Beatles rabbit hole reading books and whatnot and articles about the recording of the Beatles. There's a lot of DI'd guitar, uh, not so much the chord parts, but a lot of licks and riffs. Might yeah, be a, right. a hollow body casino, say, or something with P9s just straight into a mixing desk and that's where that sort of immediate sound is, like right in your ear. And you're like, how is that? I feel like I'm inside the guitar, this woody kind of mm. cackly sound and... I think I must have been reading about George Harrison just plugging straight in or, you know, the, that wild guitar sound on Bowie's Heroes, yeah, which is a gold top plugged into the desk because they had no amp for him on the day. You know, happy accidents. Yeah, <laughs> even all the, all the Motown guitar. All the Motown, yeah. Yep. Yes, there is hope, I'm sure. It's some of the best guitar sounds you'll ever hear and you can't really get your head around it that it's DI'd. And then you have to kind of... That's my noisy dog, dog again, Juno, named after a synthesizer. For a bath. Uh, but, yeah, those sounds are, uh, are fun. It's fun to experiment with those things, little DI'd sounds or into a tape echo then straight into the computer if you're fortunate to have have one or you know even even just a pedal board straight into the computer can really yield some amazing results was that a, a <laughs> do you think that record was a, a good medium to to experiment with that sort of approach of guitaring like do you think that the album sort of coexisted because you, you wanted to get these guitar sounds out of your head onto a onto a a platform or, or a song or um because quite often you can do this stuff in, in your own space and not release it. You'll still learn a lot about it, but it sort of stays in your own in your own head or in your own room. So do you think releasing it 
in in such a you know on vinyl and like having it distributed do you think that was a really good way to really get in deep with some of these guitar tones or do you think it was more about the the song i feel like the record getting distribution and having a label behind it it was definitely a really amazing and fortunate thing to have happened but actually all of that happened afterwards it wasn't like somebody gave me the means to explore those things and the budget beforehand I would say getting into recording yourself is, you know, if you really want to indulge your guitar rabbit holes because, you know, you can spend a lot of time chasing a very small idea, um, I definitely think everybody should do some recording themselves. And then, again, I'd, I'd planned on doing it all myself and it was really the... When I went to Shane, it kind of became about the songs and the vocal and then, of course, via it getting released and distributed. Part of the music business PR hustle, if you like, is it, it has to be about the songs and the lyrics and the singer. Um, and I feel like maybe in time I would look back and go, oh, I really feel good about the fact that it's such a guitar album. Yeah. But at the time I was uh, subconsciously ignoring that, which is a shame, actually. It's a, it's a, it's a regret. Um, but it did afford me to then take it on the road and then, you know, I went on tour with five guitars. Like, that's insane. <laughs> <laughs> Electric 12 strings and different yeah. tunings and yep. all of these kind of things. Um, and, you know, really specific sounding things to make each song, yep. to, to really bring out the best in each song, which I felt was just so important. I'm, I'm not sure I'd let myself do that again. Yeah, right. Maybe I'd just go on tour with two guitars or, dare I say, even one. But but it did afford me the kind of confidence as well, you know, and people often ask, oh, how did you do that or how do you get these things to happen? You just can't stop. You have to keep hustling and emailing and, you know, maybe I sent 300 emails and got five replies and those five replies gave the record the life that it has, you know, gave it a yeah. label and gave it, you know, means that it, you can walk into a shop in any part of Australia and it's on the shelf or you can order it or, you know, I could just as easily have gone to the coffee shop and said, ah, screw that, I'll just throw it up on the internet. Yeah. And it's a it's weirdly tied up. It's a bit like, you know, I often tell young songwriters, please sign up to APRA, you know, get your get your credit where it's due because it's actually to do with your self-worth and yep. and it's quite important for for feeling like you you're on the right right path and you know that self-belief which is a murky topic you know because there's a lot to do, to do with ego and things like that and but often people will write really great songs. Like I work with people here who write great songs and they just have zero self-belief and they're never going to write one single email to get it on yeah. the Sydney Morning Herald or whoever. Yep. You know, and some of those music blogs are really advertorial as in you're not going to get a review unless you pay for an unless ad. You pay for a, yeah, pictorial. Yeah. But actually it's worth doing even if you only do it once and that, that's the thing with like in mastering as well. Like I recently got something mastered for a release I'm going to put out later in the year and I thought just once I'm going to get someone from the big end of town to master one song and it, you know it wasn't cheap but it's really good for feeling like I've squeezed every last bit of what's great about that piece of music is going to be heard now yeah you know and yeah it might have cost me 
10 times more for something that's only 10% better. But, it, you know, if you only live once, you might as well <laughs> do something just once. And same with guitars and guitar sounds. Explore those things, you know, yeah. spend a whole day on one song and allow yourself indulgence, that space to work out those cool chords and, and beautiful melody over something. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's well worth it. You know, we, we do work hard at our art and craft and and yet constantly want to get better. And, and I think having just that little checklist of like, oh, yeah, I got to work with so-and-so because, you know, I, I think my art is worth that. Like it's and – it, and it's satisfying and it, and it does help you, I, I guess, move on to other – I wouldn't say always bigger and better things, but it does make you want to strive and, and sort of continue learning and to continue growing your skill set and your – fan base or your networking base and yeah I think it's definitely something worth doing definitely uh, cool um, and what's what's on the cards for you Jed what's, well, what's in front of you musically uh, I have a release um, coming up well when, when I get around to finishing the video <laughs> um, and I have a noisy dog. Uh, I have lots of gigs. We, we have a, a gig coming up together, of course, in the northwest of Tasmania, unless that'll be in the past by the time of the podcast. Is yeah, that, I'll probably, I'll we can edit that be. out. I'm um, going to England to play with a disco band called Smooth Sailors for two weeks. The other thing I've got cooking is some piano gigs, which is funny because I wouldn't call myself a piano player. Um, with a band called Cordrazine who used to be around. They're, they're doing a new record and a little tour and a few other recording sessions, some great bands around to come and record. Hopefully I get to talk about guitars with them. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And I, I have noticed you do play a lot around town with some great singer-songwriters and always active on the scene and and looks like you're really encouraging um, a lot of the young up-and-comings as well, like especially in the studio here, you've got a lot of, you know, cool young original artists coming in using the space. So it's, it's, it's good to see um, a healthy outlook on that sort of... Yeah, there's some great emerging artists in Tasmania um, and often really young and often from corners of the state you'd never think that they would be from and it's a real honour to have them come and work here and to often go to their gigs and I'm often really blown away. I, I just on Friday night I saw a young band called Slight Variations and I walked away just wanting to play guitar all night and wishing I was in that band even though, Great. you know, yeah. I'm, it's it's not my band obviously and I was just like... That's so inspiring. That's the sign of a good gig when you want to go home and play guitar all night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always find it um, humorous when people think, oh, I'm going to go home and like, burn my guitar. Like, you know, oh. I've never thought that. <laughs> Either have I. It's like that's the 180 degrees away from what I, yeah, I've always been inspired to go and try something or give it a try, you know, go and play. Yeah. I've even sat in an audience with a guitar player on stage uh, watching a guitar player on stage and in front of me was a, a um, really famous guitar player who used to play in uh, the cars and, and he was in the cause, the cause, yeah, the right. cars, Mike <laughs> and the mechanics, all these big 80s bands. Yeah. And he would be regarded in that country as being one of the guitar gods of, of Ireland. And I heard him, we were both watching the same gig and I heard him turn around and say to his friend, 
I'm going home to practice all night. So I thought right. well, even even the people at the top of the tree yeah. get inspired and want to go home and play all night. That's great. And it, yeah, it made me, well, relieved that it wasn't just me wanting to go <laughs> home and practice all night. Yeah. Practice, play. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for letting us hang out in your beautiful space here today, Jed, and having a chat on the podcast. And I look forward to hanging out again soon, playing some guitar and... Yeah, yeah. Talking, talking guitars and keeping it real. Thanks for having me. Right on. All right, Good thanks, Jack. Thanks for listening, folks, to another episode of Say It With Guitars. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, share it around to your mates, leave a good review, and hopefully we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.